Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we've taken this time to investigate your word tonight, we ask that you would just bless the study of your word. We pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us. And Lord, that our time together would be profitable for our service for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated and turn with me to what I hope is a familiar passage for most of you, Isaiah chapter 53. And uh, we're just going to work our way through uh, this chapter tonight. Of course, uh, there are 12 verses. We won't be able to get absolutely everything or we would be here for several weeks. And uh, that's not our goal is just to get the big picture here. Uh, this is one chapter in the Bible God put there to prove or convince the world that Jesus is the only Messiah, the only answer to the Bible, uh, what the, the claims and the prophecies the Bible makes, the, the best that uh, Judaism or modern Jewish religion has been able to do with this is they claim that Isaiah 53 is talking about the Jewish people. And uh, yet, uh, as we read through here, the voicing is singular. Uh, it is not God divided with them. It's God divided with him. It was not God was pleased with them. He was pleased with him. It is talking about an individual here. And, of course, it's interesting to know that uh, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls shortly after World War II and all of those things, uh, the primary discovery, the primary work even to this day, I, they're still working on those things, but is Isaiah. And as they uh, uh, translated the text of Isaiah and collated it or compared it with the existing text, of course, you can just hear uh, the um, angst and, and things as, as they were writing, hoping to find a new text to supplant this one. And you know what they found? Perfect agreement with what you have here in your King James Bible. And that Dead Sea Scroll dates back within a hundred years of Isaiah's actual writing of these words. For 150 years or so. I mean, it is possible that it was a copy of a copy or just second or third generation. And, and it takes us back to the text that the scholars complain came from the 9th and 10th and 13th, depending on who you talk to. No. It's the old text. It's the original text. And the, this chapter, and, and this isn't the only place, of course, uh, if you want to read about the suffering of Christ on the cross, read Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus was born, written by David, and yet describes the crucifixion with such detail that the only answer some scholars can do is to say that it was written after the crucifixion of Jesus, which is... Impossible, unless you really want to believe that. And so as we look here, we start with two questions. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, 
these questions are asked not because they want an answer. Uh, it's asked because everybody knows the answer. Who has believed our report? Very few. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? To those same people that believe the report. But they are such of a minority. And uh, one of the things that you do need to understand and, and we do need to get a hold of is true Bible-believing Christianity has always been a severe minority. In fact, it was such a minority that John and Charles Wesley, after they got saved by hearing some uh, an Anabaptist group in Europe preach the gospel, decided that God had called them to take the gospel to the true church of Jesus Christ, the Church of England. Uh, if it needed the gospel, how could it be a true church? Because you can't be a part of the true church until after you get saved. And so that just tells you how convoluted people's thinking is. And it is the unanswerable questions as we start here. Uh, who hath believed our report? I, I actually had a person ask me, he says, How in the world can you believe that Jesus is the Messiah when all the Jewish people have rejected him? And I said, have you never read what happened on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 souls were added unto them. And just a few weeks, maybe a few months later, 5,000 Jewish men were saved in one afternoon after the healing of the lame man. I said, this book is a Jewish book. I said, it was the unbelievers that drew the line between Jesus and Judaism so that they might not be swallowed up by those that believed in the Bible. What, what did the um, high priest say as they were plotting Jesus' death? He says, if we leave this guy alone, all men are going to believe on him. And as the triumphal entry, they, they said, the whole world's gone after him. Let me tell you something. Jesus was not believed, not only by Jewish people, but by everyone except those that were willing to accept the truth. And them, to them, if you'll just skip back to verse 10 of 52, it says, The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The question is, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? To those who get saved. Amen? And we're not Calvinists here. Uh, we don't believe that God only chose certain people. He allowed whosoever will, whosoever would make that choice. And we start with two unanswerable questions. It was John the Baptist said, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode on him, and I knew him not. 
But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. You see, we know the answer to these questions, but the world loves to play games. They love to say, you know, you are such a little group. How in the world do you think that you're the only ones that are right? And I always like to remind them, I don't believe we're the only ones that are right. I believe God is the only one that is right. I just happen to agree with Him because I have it written down. Amen? Hello? You see, we've got to help people understand that just because they're going with the main group of people in this world, that doesn't mean that they're right. We live in a world where it's opinion. 97% of people polled believe that Trump is a real jerk. Why? Because 97% of the people that polled have been reading your news articles. Uh, Let's let's get on with life. Amen? And let's stop uh, making ourselves uh, 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 subject to all of these things. It doesn't matter. If someone didn't believe. But if you're saved, you have believed the report. And if you're saved tonight, you've seen the mighty arm of God revealed and the power of God in your life to give you salvation. But we come on here to verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant... And as a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I always get a little upset when Hollywood tries to depict Jesus in some way or another. Even the most respectful uh, times that Jesus has uh, been depicted in Hollywood, Ben-Hur, in that... uh, quote-unquote, great film, they never showed his face. But they always showed the reaction of everybody who saw them. You know, the Roman guard who was beating Ben-Hur when he saw Jesus, he stopped and just stood there like he was frozen. But that wasn't real life. That's only in the movies. It says here that he grew up like a tender plant. Now, How many of you remember uh, Laban's two daughters, Leah, was tender-eyed? That is never a compliment, all right? Uh, uh, Someone, uh, they still really don't know what it meant, but uh, you you get the idea reading the passage. It was not nice. Uh, It was not desirable. And in here, we have... Jesus being described as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground, having no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. There wasn't anything fantastic about the appearance of Jesus. But when he touched the blind eyes and made them see, 
when he healed the lame and made them walk, when he opened the, uh, the, the ears of the deaf, when he raised the dead, those were fantastic things. In fact, it was the, the uh, scribes and the Pharisees that said that, um, uh, that thou being a man makest thyself God. They gave that a reason to stone Jesus. Jesus was so much a man that unless you were willing to believe by faith that he is God, you couldn't do it. Are we together on that? You know, we get all of these crazy ideas. And, of course, everybody wants to have a uh, manger scene. And, and, of course, the most wonderful thing is the baby. And there's always a little halo painted around his head. And, and uh, there was no halo that night, I promise you. Uh, the Bible tells us that there was nothing... Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men. How many of you remember the story when Jesus went back to Nazareth and preached in the synagogue? And by the time everything was done, they were trying to carry him out to the edge of the hill upon which the city was built and throw him down to kill him. How in the world? Could anybody read this passage and know anything about the New Testament? Even a cursory knowledge of the stories of Jesus as in the four Gospels. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How many of you remember what happened as he walked into the death room of Jairus' daughter? And he said, she's not dead, she sleeps. And these people who were professional mourners, wailing and screaming and making great lamentation, immediately stopped and they laughed him to scorn. And you can see Jesus just putting them out and pushing and, and, and moving the people out of the house. And here you are breaking up a good funeral. We're trying to comfort this poor man. And here you are, you know, you're just messing everything up. And Jesus knew he was messing up a funeral. He had every intention of destroying that funeral. And the parents were soon filled with the joy of beholding their daughter alive again through the power but of Jesus Christ. And yet, what is it? And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. How many of you remember the story of the blind man in John chapter 9? As they begin to uh, put this poor blind man on in, uh, in, in the inquisitor's seat as they judged him and asked him over and over again. And what did it say? His parents would not answer for him because they were afraid. Of the Pharisees. There's another passage that talks about many of the Pharisees wanted to believe on Jesus, but they couldn't because they esteemed the thoughts and wishes of other people more than they did the thoughts and wishes of God. Where were the people who believed on Jesus when the crowd was crying, Crucify him? 
You see, all of these things are foretold in this passage. And we keep on going and it says here, He was despised and we, uh, we hid as it were our faces from Him. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. We look at the story of Jesus. And even the disciples as Peter made the great proclamation, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, only just a few verses later, in the same chapter to have Jesus tell Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest the things of man, not the things of God. They did not understand that Jesus had to be smitten for us. And yet, while he was on the cross... They almost quoted Isaiah 53. He believed in God, let him deliver him. And they quoted other verses as we were talking, going through here. And the Bible says, here was our, uh, our reaction. All we like sheep, verse 6, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. While Jesus was actually doing that work on our behalf, we were turning our back on him and going the other way. I had this whole outline in use. We can go back and pick up some of them. He was, we have the unanswerable questions. I got that. And, uh, Excuse me here. And we have the unbelievable report. We have the unnoticed or unrecognized Lord. We have the unattractive Lord, the undesired Lord. And all the time, He was suffering in our place. Verse 7, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet, he opened not his mouth. How about the word uncomplaining, talking about our Savior? All of these things, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. How in the world can you get the state of Israel out of that passage? But you sure can get Jesus Christ, can't you? Jesus suffered in our place. He was not judged properly. Um, several years ago when Brother Mack was here, uh, he preached a sermon around Christmas on all of the um, 
all of the rules that they had broken in order to get Jesus to the cross. Every rule of jurisprudence that the Jewish people had for themselves and from the Bible, they had broken in order to get Jesus to the cross. He was taken from prison and from judgment. He was cut off. And yet in verse 9, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Jesus was slain with the wicked in between two thieves. I think there was some politician that tried to use that a while back. I'm standing between two thieves uh, and uh, probably uh, got away with that. But the simple truth of the matter is Jesus was killed. He made his grave with the wicked. And yet history tells us that two of the richest men in all Judaism were there to bury him, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And how do you plan that stuff? How do you fabricate those things? And yet, here's what the Bible said, very simply, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And we get down to verse 10, and it says, Yet... It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Jesus had done no evil, and yet he bore all of the sins of all of the world. He was untainted by, this, the, uh, by all of the sin that he bore, and yet it pleased God to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We make a a great deal about the salvation that God has offered us. The, The Bible word is propitiation. And you look up that word in a dictionary, and it just simply means appeasement is what it does. But you have to understand, certain words, when they're used in the Bible, have a greater biblical definition to them uh, uh, in the simplest usage of the word propitiation. You have a loan, you pay it off, you've been, uh, 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 you have propitiated the bank if you... Uh, have someone that is angry at you and they want some kind of settlement and you settle with them. That is the simplest definition of that word, but here we must understand to whom the debt was owed. This was not the debtor initiating or appeasing or making the payment. This was the guarantor or the owner of the loan making a way that the debt could be paid. See, that's the difference between the Bible usage and common usage of this word. There was not one sin that Jesus did not pay for. And yet, it pleased the Lord. The only time Jesus ever addressed God the Father by anything other than Father in the Scriptures that we know about was while he was hanging on the cross in the darkness when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
And yet, it pleased God that Christ should suffer. And at the end of that same verse, it says, The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Now, we go to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. It says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What's the next phrase? How many of you know that? Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. There was a reason God was pleased. Because only Jesus could fulfill the will of the Father. Only Jesus could suffer in our place. And come back to life. Only Jesus, only God could die and come back and give us our freedom. In Luke chapter 12 verse 32 it says, Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, the only way that God could incorporate us into His kingdom, look at the next verse, verse 11, He shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. By His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. God has not even gotten started yet. We'll get that in verse 12. But he saw the travail of his soul. He was satisfied. If you're going to be saved, you're going to be saved through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And here the word many is used. And uh, the Calvinists like to jump on that and say, see, only the, only the saved, but... The Bible teaches us very simply that not everyone is going to be saved. Not everyone is going to choose salvation. And just like we go back to the beginning, to those questions, who hath believed our report? Those that get saved. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Those that are saved. Who is justified by the travail and the suffering of Jesus on the cross? Those that are saved. And we come down to verse 12, it says, Therefore will I divide with him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. We need to take just a few minutes and look at this verse. Philippians chapter 2. And there are many other passages we could go to. Verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue 
should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, look at verse 12. What's our response to this truth? Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This thought here in, of Jesus, every knee bowing, of Jesus being exalted, of Jesus being lifted up, of God giving him uh, a special place, and, and all of these things, what is that supposed to do for us? It's supposed to make us desire to take the salvation that he has given us and work it. Make it work. You own a car. Why? Because you want to drive it, right? Uh, unless you live in certain places, then you want to put it up on cinder blocks in the front yard. But since we have none of those here in New York City, uh, we de- cannot do those things uh, with automobiles, and nor should we. But if you normally, if you have a car, you want to drive it. If you have salvation, why wouldn't you want to make it work? And yet when trouble comes, what do we do? Dear Lord, why are you persecuting me? He's not persecuting you. He's giving you an opportunity to make your salvation work. And so let's get back to Isaiah chapter 53 here. It says... And he, I'm sorry, he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 8. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Uh, Many people talk about the Lord's Prayer being our Father. No, that's the Lord's instruction on prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John chapter 17. And let me just read a few verses from it. Jesus is speaking on his way to uh, Gethsemane here. And he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but also for them which shall believe on me through their word. That's talking about you and I today. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus is praying for us. And what his prayer is, that we will live a life that will make the world believe that Jesus came. Now, we have an opportunity. It's the Christmas season. As Andrew said, we've got 5,000 tracks. And if we don't pass them out this year, they'll just have to go in the garbage can. You say, but I pass them out in the street and people throw them away. Well, that's okay. You know why? Because we've taken away our responsibility. We've We've fulfilled our responsibility to get the word out to as many people as we can. Now, be here Sunday. Let's, let's have a full, let's just 
make it impossible to get around on a story a Sunday afternoon without getting a gospel track from an open-door Bible Baptist church. Why? Because Jesus came. Now, we know he wasn't born at Christmas time. But the whole world will stop and listen to the Christmas story. And yet the Christmas story doesn't end with the wise men showing up. It ends at an empty tomb. And a hilltop outside Jerusalem where Jesus ascended and he's coming again. This chapter goes through the entire history of God giving revelation to mankind. And what does mankind do with it? Doesn't believe it. Hides his face from it. Turns away and ignores it. Runs the opposite direction. But the Lord has done all of this that we might enjoy his salvation. What's that supposed to make us do? His exaltation should make us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Being careful that we're not doing things under our own ideas and our own notions, but being obedient to God because He's praying for us. He is praying that the world will see Him in the lives that we live. Now, if that doesn't describe what the church is supposed to do, I guess I'm a little lost. But it does describe what the church is supposed to do. And Jesus is praying for us. Many times during the holiday season, just to think about, follow this thing out. We very much like the Charles Dickens story, allow all of the problems of the past to come and haunt us during the Christmas season. You know what the answer for that is? It's here in Isaiah 53. He bare the sin of many. By his knowledge, my righteous servant just shall, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We go through here. By and with his stripes we are healed. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He has borne our griefs and our sorrows. That's where we need to go. When we are reminded of all of these problems of the past. And we are to go forward exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us. Uh, A familiar passage, one that we've been through many times. But Lord, let us remember this passage. And Lord, we ask for opportunities to speak to those who would doubt the truthfulness of God's word. And maybe are questioning that we could take them back to a chapter written... um, over six, seven hundred years before Jesus was born, that so describes his ministry that 
the entire New Testament in its scope is described in these short little chapter in the book of Isaiah. Help us to be faithful. Help us to work the salvation that you have given us. And Lord, help us to make the world aware that that Savior which was born in Bethlehem is living today and saving souls. In your name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'll have the piano play. The altar's open if you need to come and pray.